BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Don't let the mysteries of life scare you away. Instead, ask Altucher. Here's James Altucher. So, Claudia, uh, this is another Ask Altucher, but I really want to get down to the truth about diets. We've been doing paleo for how long now? Uh, two years and then it goes on and off because I miss French toast. I have to say it. I just miss it. And then my yoga teacher says, no, no French toast. And I'm just going crazy. I, I, there's no joy in my life if I don't eat bread. And, <laughs> and I know bread is no good. Do you and, have an expert that we can talk to? Well, well, also, I just want to mention also, we've been doing, um, we did for a while, Tim Ferriss' slow carb diet, um, which has a cheat day on Saturdays. But we would eat so much bread on Saturdays that we would be sick like till Tuesday. Or we would travel to Thailand and then off it goes. You got to have that Thai in Thailand. <laughs> so yeah, I do. So so Ari Wynn, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy, Happy to be here. You are the author of the book, The Low Carb Myth. And before I ask you about The Low Carb Myth, I saw your photo on like your Gmail thing. You're totally like ripped. So clearly like car- eating carbs is not hurting you if that's what you're truly doing. Yeah, it, it is indeed what I'm truly doing. So, um, so, so what's the story? Like can I eat carbs? You, you most definitely can eat carbs. Yeah. Um, yeah basically the, the point of this book and, and the reason I wrote it is because there are just so many myths and misconceptions around carbohydrates, around sugars, around how they affect our, our physiology um, that have been perpetuated for so long that I really wanted to just write something that was comprehensive and address the science on it from, from every angle and, and debunked all of the myths and, and really get down to what is the real science of what makes us fat, what doesn't make us fat, what makes us lean, and, and really get clarity on all those issues. Well, can I, can I start off by asking you a question? So, so eating a piece of bread, this is maybe, maybe this is myth number one, that converts to sugar, right? Like, isn't bread the same as sugar? Uh, well, it's, it's not that it's the same as sugar. Um, first of all, there are actually lots of different kinds of sugar, but eventually every carbohydrate that you eat essentially breaks down into what's called glucose in your bloodstream. And you've probably heard of blood sugar. Yeah. Well, that's, that's basically blood glucose. Okay. So those sugars in one way or another, they eventually get turned into blood glucose or blood sugar. Okay. So, so, so uh, one quote that I heard was that eating a piece of bread 
is like pouring molasses on of, on the keys of a piano. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I guess it means that the piano, all the keys would get stuck, so the piano player can't can't play the piano anymore. Okay. Well, I mean, there are if if you look online, different articles, videos online, there are a thousand different articles that you can find. Actually, probably more like you know, hundred thousand. Um, with 500 different myths about sugar that have absolutely no basis in science. Um, and, and they've just, you know, sugar is toxic, sugar makes you fat, sugar causes diabetes, um, sugar poisons your liver, sugar, you know, shrinks your brain and make you, makes you stupid. I mean, okay, okay, but honestly though, isn't that all true? <laughs> well, we just read me, yesterday me, that, that carbs causes Alzheimer's. Let, let me put it this way. You know, I, I mentioned blood sugar before. When, when we talk about blood sugar, what we're really talking about is the fact that you, me, and everybody else has millions of sugar molecules floating around in their bloodstream day and night every single day. So the question to ask yourself then is, if sugar is inherently bad for you, why is it that we have millions of sugar molecules floating around in our blood? And by the way, we have those sugar molecules floating around in our bloodstream regardless of what we eat in our diet. Even if we eat a zero-carbohydrate diet, we have millions of sugar molecules floating around in our bloodstream all day and all night because our body is manufacturing sugar. Mm -hmm. So the question is, if sugar is harmful... Why would our bodies be designed to constantly manufacture sugar molecules and have those available in our bloodstream constantly? Well, maybe it's the maybe the eating carbs puts it out of balance so it's too much sugar. Well, and and that's a scientific claim that we can actually address through science. And we have addressed that claim. We we have done those experiments on every angle of this imaginable and we know the answers. So, um do carbohydrates make you fat? You know, for example, um, you know, one of, one of the, the low-carb myths that's perpetuated in a lot of uh, paleo communities is the idea that carbohydrates spike insulin. Insulin is a fat-storing hormone, and therefore carbohydrates make you fat. This is, this is called the carbohydrate hypothesis of obesity. Now, we, this is a scientific claim. We can actually test this. How do we test it? Well, there's a bunch of different ways. Um, one is we can look at different populations around the world who eat higher or lower carbohydrates and see if there's any reliable relationship between populations that eat more carbs being fatter. If we do that, we find that there's absolutely no relationship whatsoever. There are tons of populations around the world that eat way more carbohydrates than Americans eat and are lean and don't have an obesity epidemic. Okay, so that's one, one example, one way of testing the hypothesis. Another way, more uh, rigorously scientific, would be to literally put people in a metabolic ward. So um, you put people in a hospital and you completely control their diet. Okay, So you take one group of, of people and you put them on a diet that's, say, 80% carbohydrate and 5% fat. You take another group and you put them on 70% fat and 0% carbohydrate. And you match those two diets for calories. Okay, So they're both consuming the same exact amount of calories every day. And you control every single thing about their activity levels, 
and their calorie intake perfectly. Okay? And you measure what happens after six months. And we've done these experiments. Obesity scientists have done these experiments, and we know that at equivalent amount of calories, body weight does not change. Body fat percentage does not change. It doesn't matter whether your diet is 70% fat and 5% carbohydrates or 70% carbohydrates and 5% fat. Body weight remains the same. So, you know, like I said, these are, these are scientific claims and we have to look to the science to get those answers. So that's very interesting when it comes to the weight uh, situation. But when it comes to, for example, I, I've read that eating two slices of whole wheat bread is the same as having a Coke. Uh, because the bread, the way that, that is processed today, it includes something like, a, I think it's gliacine, gliacine or something like that, that is terribly for you. And so, for example, choosing a certain type of bread, like the Ezekiel bread that is mostly uh, sprouted, is, is, is a choice that will not cause that chemical to enter your brain that, uh, that acts as, as a glue. Is this true? Uh, well, I mean, there, there are certain claims around gluten and various effects on the body, um, and, and that's really not related to carbohydrates per se. Um, that's something that's specific to gluten in, in gluten-containing grains. And um, the science around that is very controversial. There are obviously some people, you know, the author of Grain Brain or Wheat Belly, who are uh, demonizing gluten. Um, and there are lots of other people that have debunked the notion that gluten is harmful and have pointed out that gluten is really only specifically harmful to people who are gluten intolerant. So that, not that's, to that's the interesting. Population. That's interesting because we, she was basically just quoting Wheat Belly. So right. that was, that's his stance. So what you're saying is we can eat carbohydrates, but a certain kind. So for example, that uh, large population that you talked in the world, I'm, I'm guessing it refers to Asia where they eat rice. Um, yeah, the whole, the whole continent of Asia has been eating huge amounts of rice and a starch-based diet for uh, hundreds or thousands of years. There are also numerous hunter-gatherer populations, um, like the Kitifans in the South Pacific, uh, like the Okinawans, who are renowned for having um, you know, extremely high longevity. They're one of the uh, blue zones. Um, basically, every blue zone population that's known for, for living very long is a carbohydrate-based diet. Um, we have... Tons of other hunter-gatherer tribes, the U tribe, the Hadza, you know, on and on and on, um, who eat diets that are predominantly root vegetables, fruit, uh, honey. Some of these tribes eat absolutely massive amounts of honey, which is pure sugar. Right. Uh, and they are, without exception, extremely lean, uh, not insulin resistant, and healthy by all measures. So, for example, um, if I had a bowl of Kellogg's with raisins, the brand Kellogg's with raisins, that would be a carbohydrate that is probably not so good because it's not plant-based and rice. Is, is, is there, where's the line? So, so here's the deal. We can, we can do lots of different experiments like the ones I described to you, like metabolic ward studies, where you measure calories perfectly and you, you, know, you take elements, you know, you take, for example, let's do this one diet that is higher in starch. Let's do this other diet that's higher in fat. Let's do one diet that's higher in sugar, you know, and you can, you can test the effects of those different diets. Um, different kinds of carbohydrates, even sugars, um, when they match them for calories, there aren't significant differences in fat gain or fat loss. Now, 
that's when they're matched for calories. So in the, in the real world, uh, it's what's called ad libitum, which means eating at your pleasure. And most of us are really in this state of eating at our pleasure, eating how much we want and when we want. Now, when you're in that kind of environment, things change a little bit. And the reason why they change is certain kinds of foods impact our brain in such a way that we start eating more or start eating less. Okay? Uh -huh. And this is, this is known as what's called food reward. And, and what that reward term implies is it's referring to the reward or pleasure center of your brain. So um, we can look at how palatable and rewarding different kinds of foods are. Um, and, you know, to what extent we derive pleasure from those foods and they light up the pleasure center of our brains and we go, oh, wow, you know, this tastes amazing. Right. right? Okay. Now, when you introduce those kind of elements to it, when you have very highly palatable, highly rewarding foods, then things change a little bit, especially in the context of an environment where people are allowed to eat whenever they want and however, they, however much they want. And the reason they change is the science is very clear that highly palatable, highly rewarding foods drive up overall calorie consumption and tend to drive fat gain, at least in the, the part of the population that's susceptible to it, which is a, is a pretty significant uh, percentage. Did so you follow I, all that? So, yeah. So if I love pasta, I'm going to want a second serving. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Now, now the real question here is what kinds of foods are highly palatable and highly rewarding? And the answer is it's not carbs. It's not fat. It's not sugar per se. What it is, is specific kinds of foods that are usually highly processed and a very densely packed with a combination of sugars and fats together. That's when you really get something that's called a hyper-rewarding stimulus, something that is unnaturally intense for that pleasure center of the brain, and it tends, up to dry, it tends to drive up what's called the reward threshold in very much the same way that drugs, addictive drugs, drive up that reward threshold. And what that means is uh, we end up needing or wanting to consume more of that substance in order to feel a given amount of pleasure. Like and caramel popcorn, for example? That, that would be one example, yeah. Um, cake that's covered with cream, so you get a, a, a real dense combination of sugars with fats together. That is a hyper-rewarding stimulus. Now, when you do that kind of thing very frequently, uh, it starts to drive up the overall amount of calories that you consume. So, in other words, it's affecting your pleasure center of the brain in such a way that it's interacting with the appetite regulation center of the brain and changing how often you feel hungry and how much you want to eat. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. So, so um, when I've seen people go on like Atkins style diets, it does seem to me, and, and I noticed this for myself when I started going on the paleo diet, that there was initial uh, loss of weight and better metabolism uh, everything seems a little better other than the fact that I was hungry all the time. <laughs> well, um, you know, it basic, basically what I told you as far as those metabolic ward studies that match for calories um, with different diets that vary in carbohydrate to fat percentage, those diets have con conclusively proven 
that the carbohydrate to fat percentage of the diet just is not a significant factor in how fat or lean we are. So it could, it could be that maybe um, because I was avoiding carbs, I was just simply not snacking throughout the day like I might have normally done. Well, so, so the, the question is, and, and you bring up a, a very good point here, the question is if what I'm saying is true that the carb to fat percentage of the diet doesn't matter, um, then why do people go on a low-carb paleo diet or an Atkins diet or a vegan diet, say a very high-carb vegan diet? Um, why do people frequently go on those diets and lose weight? Is it because of the carb to fat percentage? And, and actually, it's not. It really has nothing to do with the carb to fat ratio of the diet. Here's what it does have to do with. It has to do with protein intake, number one. So when people transition for, from a um, typical you know, standard American diet to say they go low-carb paleo, one of the big shifts they make is they increase their protein intake. What does protein do? It increases satiety. And we know from the research that it drives down overall calories consumed. Okay, spontaneously, without the person trying to eat less, they end up eating less. Hmm. Okay, so protein intake is a big reason why low carb paleo diets work. Another reason is that's interesting. Uh, another reason is when people transition to a lot of these diets, whether it's low carb paleo, whether it's vegan, whether it's anything else, they typically remove lots of processed, highly rewarding, uh, highly palatable foods from their diet and replace them with whole foods. Okay, so you reward, you lower the overall reward and palatability value of the diet, and that again, just just as with protein intake, further drives down overall calories consumed. Again, without the person actually trying to eat less, they end up eating hundreds of calories less. Right. Okay. So those are the the two main factors. Another one is anytime you remove any macronutrient or any major food groups from the diet. Generally, that will cause, again, people to eat less overall calories. And it doesn't matter whether you go on a, a low-carb diet or a vegan diet where you're removing animal foods or a, uh, a low-fat diet and you're trying to get all the fatty foods out of your diet. Invariably, whenever you remove any macronutrient, regardless of what it is, you'll end up eating less food and you'll lose fat. That's very interesting. Can, can I ask you, what did you eat yesterday? <laughs> yeah, like what's your typical diet? Uh, well, I'll tell you what I just had for breakfast. I had um, pancakes. I had four uh, whole eggs uh, with the yolks. Uh, I'm not a fatophobe either. Um, and I had purple sweet potatoes with a dollop of sour cream on them. And nice. what else did I have? That's it, actually. Oh, I had a little cheese. Yeah, two, two purple potatoes. Four eggs and a little cheese. That was my breakfast this morning. Okay, and so so that's high protein, right? But no, but you did not a lot of carbs, like just two potatoes. There's a lot of carbs in two huge purple sweet potatoes. There's uh, this morning and and most typical breakfast for me. I have at least a hundred grams of carbs on most days. Usually, I'll have a bowl of uh, of sometimes I'll have a bowl of either oatmeal or teff with some. Uh, some yogurt, some goat milk yogurt or something like that. Um, but yeah, usually breakfast, 75 to 150 grams of carbs, somewhere in there. And what about lunch? Uh, lunch, usually I will have uh, potatoes or um, 
Let's see. Just like a platter of potatoes. I love potatoes. <laughs> well, uh, oftentimes I make French fries. So I'll uh, French and, and fries. not not real French fries, but I, uh, I I have a French fry cutter, and usually I'll just throw them in the oven and, and bake them. I won't fry them. What, what kind of oil do you use in the when you put them in the oven? I rub them down with a little coconut oil and then coconut salt them a little bit. Okay. Um, so I'll have something like that, and then maybe I'll have uh, some tuna or some scallops. Um, sometimes white rice. Things like that. Okay. okay. Do, you, do you eat bread? Uh, I do. I, I do have some sour bread. Uh, excuse me. I have some sourdough bread uh, every once in a while. And, um, yeah, I, I enjoy sourdough. I, I'm not a, a huge fan of bread. I, I find that I do better with, uh, with root vegetables like potatoes and, and fruit. Um, and I base my diet around those more than grains or bread. But, you know, I certainly have uh, bread or pasta occasionally. So, so what about for dinner? For dinner? Uh, usually I will have um, – well, after my workouts, usually I'll have a giant thing of uh, either white rice or french fries or um, a big you know, fruit smoothie or something like that. Um, and, so, so not a huge – oh, sorry. Go ahead. And, and a significant protein source, or I'll have you know a, a really giant bowl of white rice with raisins and milk and uh, and maple syrup, something like that. So not not a huge dinner though. It's not like you're going to have like a porterhouse steak and then French fries. Um, I I eat a lot. Um, I mean, to give you an example, in in any one of my typical meals, I might eat um, as as much as you know. As many carbs as some low-carb people eat in an entire day or an entire week. Um, now, my overall calorie intake each day is, is somewhere in the neighborhood of probably 4,500 calories. That's, so, so that's about double what like the, the recommended calorie intake is. Well, why do you think your, your metabolism can handle that without gaining weight? Uh, well, there's no universal recommended calorie amount. There is an average calorie amount that's taken in by Americans who are generally pretty sedentary. Um, if you look at elite athletes, say Michael Phelps, uh, he eats over 10,000 calories a day. Wow. Now, so, you know, why isn't Michael Phelps gaining weight? But well, he, he swims like 20 miles a day. Well, that's, that's, the point is that's what happens when you're a more active person and you're using your muscles actively during the day. Um, the, the more active you become, the higher the baseline level that you're regulating what's called energy flux, which is calories in, calories out. But um, it, it, with, it seems like you have to exercise a lot, though. Like, let's say you do an hour of exercise. You might only be burning off 100 calories, you know, not that much. Uh, well, an hour of exercise, depending on what you do, might burn four or 500 calories. Um, but I actually agree with you, uh, unlike probably a lot of people in the industry, I, I happen to agree with you that exercise by itself is not enough. Um, I'm a big advocate of something called NEAT, which stands for Non-Exercise Activity Thermogenesis, which in, in simple terms is really just making efforts to be active with gentle movement, you know, not, not hard exercise or anything, but just gentle movement throughout the day. As an example, um, I work at my computer writing a lot throughout the day. I have a little mini stair stepper um, at my standing desk. And just throughout the day, I'll do, you know, little bursts of stepping on my little stair stepper for, you know, 20 or 30 seconds every now and then. And at the end of the day, little efforts like that can actually make huge differences. It can be the difference between 
depending on how active you are, it can be the difference between 1,000, 1,500, or even 2,000 calories a day. Wow. You know, I, I really agree with that because I, I remember when I, when I moved from New York City to um, about 60 miles north of New York City. In New York City, you walk around all the time. Everywhere you go, you walk to meetings and there's, you could walk miles a day. And once I moved to a place where I wasn't walking around from building to building, I did gain weight. I had to completely change my eating style to avoid gaining weight. Yeah, and, and there's a slippery slope here because um, oftentimes people will experience something like that and they notice they're gaining weight and then they respond to it by thinking, oh, I need to eat less. I'm eating too much. Okay? And so they start eating less and then as a result of eating less, you probably feel lower energy and you have even less of a drive to go out and be active. And if you keep going down that, you know, that, that cycle, that slippery slope, eventually you train your body into regulating energy flux, that calories in, calories out. You train it into regulating that at lower and lower levels. Okay, now think of that in contrast to what I just told you about Michael Phelps, right? This is somebody that's regulating energy balance at a very, very high level. Okay, so 10,000 calories in every day, but the guy's got abs, right? He's very lean, he's not fat. Okay, so in other words, what, what you do when you kind of go down that slippery slope of becoming less and less active, trying to eat less and less in response to it, is you're doing the opposite of what athletes do. Athletes train their body to take in more and to burn more fuel and be more active, right? And a lot of people make the mistake of going in the opposite direction. Uh, so, so how's like how many how many hours of sleep do you do a night? Because that also seems to be regulated, uh, uh, correlated with um, you know weight gain, or supposedly. It, it it absolutely is, um, and it's not just sleep. It's it's actually circadian rhythm in general, um, and and I'm a huge advocate of of circadian rhythm as a big big factor in the obesity epidemic. Um, I get personally uh, usually about eight hours of sleep a night. Um, but there are other elements that are important to address here. It, circadian rhythm isn't just how many hours you sleep. It's actually your, the light exposure patterns that are entering your eyeballs and feeding back into that circadian rhythm regulation center of the brain. And in turn, when circadian rhythm gets disrupted, for example, when you're staying up late you know, at 1130 at night, staring into a computer screen emitting lots of blue light or a TV or texting or looking at your iPad, that disrupts circadian rhythm. And when that gets disrupted, that actually feeds back into the appetite regulation center of the brain, and it changes those hunger and satiety signals. So we know, for example, that um, when people have disrupted circadian rhythm, they tend to eat more overall food, and they specifically tend to crave very sweet and very fatty foods. Wow. Okay? So having disrupted circadian rhythm actually changes that calories in, calories out equation in very profound ways. Very wow, this is so fascinating. So, Ari, right, I'm going to read the book. I haven't read the book yet, but we just met over email yesterday. Yeah, I'm so, reading now. Ari Witten, W-H-I-T-T-E-N, The Low Carb Myth. Uh, this has been really fascinating. Thanks so much for, for joining you. us. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on. Excellent. I'll talk to you soon, Ari. Bye. Okay, bye. Now that's what we call done. Visit StansberryRadioChooseYourself.com to download our free report called the Choose Yourself Stories and check back daily for more Ask Altucher.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.